0: This is episode 218 with performance coach, author, speaker, and one of my favorite thinkers on sustainable peak performance, Mr. Brad Stolberg. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features one of the best thinkers about sustainable well-being, performance, and mental toughness, Brad Stolberg. Brad coaches executives, physicians, and elite athletes on their mindset and how to optimize their performance and progression over time. His new book is The Practice of Groundedness, a transformative path to success that feeds, not crushes, your soul. He's also co-written The Passion Paradox and Peak Performance with his co-author, Steve Magnus. In this discussion, we're going to talk about being competitive and driven with high standards for yourself in a way that's sustainable over the long term. But before we start, if you're new to this podcast, then welcome. Strength Running exists to help you improve. So don't miss our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash strength And of course, our home base is strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've helped tens of thousands of runners all around the world with the award-winning Strength Running blog, our free email courses on topics from strength to mental toughness to injury prevention, and the full catalog of training programs and coaching services to help you achieve your wildest ambitions as a runner at strengthrunning.com coaching. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's biomarker data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you and then offer science-backed recommendations to improve any metrics that are outside of your unique optimal zones. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com/strengthrunning. We're also supported by Athletic Greens, a new sponsor that I'm very excited about. They're a health and wellness company that makes AG1, a category-leading greens mix that has 75 vitamins and minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, antioxidants, and adaptogens. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to get a free year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. You can sign up for a one-time shipment or a convenient recurring delivery at athleticgreens.com Jason. Our special guest today is Mr. Brad Stolberg. He's written three of my favorite books on performance titled Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and his latest, The Practice of Groundedness. In total, they've sold more than a quarter million copies and have been translated into more than 15 languages. He's a contributing editor to Outside Magazine, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Wired, and many others. Brad also coaches entrepreneurs, executives, pro athletes, and physicians on how to be a top performer sustainably. And that is the theme of this discussion. How us runners can go after our big goals in a way that doesn't burn us out. We all want to train harder, achieve our lofty aspirations, and do so for years and years to come. Brad is going to help us think more strategically about long-term success, about sustainability, and the mindset strategies that make all of this possible. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Brad Stolberg. Mr. Brad Stolberg, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Jason. Well, I'm so excited that you're here. You are one of my favorite thinkers on on what it really takes to produce peak performances, whether that's you know in a professional setting or in athletics. So I'm lo- really looking forward to talking to you about your new book, The Practice of Groundedness. I hear it's doing quite well, so congratulations. Yeah, thanks.
1: Um, it's always uh, always fun to put one of these out in the world. You never know what you're going to get, but so far people seem to be digging it, which is good.
0: Yeah. And I love how it is so widely applicable to so many different scenarios. And what I wanted to do today is talk about your book in context for runners uh, in particular, because I I think it has so many deep connections to long-term success uh, in endurance running, which is kind of a difficult proposition. Running is a very hard sport. And I feel like runners are always straddling that line between pushing the envelope, wanting to do more, to train harder, but then also you have to be wary of injuries, you have to be wary of overtraining, and just burning the candle so bright that your drive and motivation sort of evaporate over time. So I'm really excited about this, and what I wanted to do is talk about some of the big principles that you have in your book, Uh, and, and the first one is accept where you are to get where you want to go and Brad this is impossible for us runners <laughs> we overestimate our fitness by doing that we we run workouts too fast we rush our training to get ready for a race you know it's why the annual injury rate among runners is is just so high maybe upwards of 70 to 75% so i'm really curious what practical ways can athletes truly accept where they are right now so that they don't make these mistakes. Because I think in running, it's so easy to make them. Right.
1: So I'm glad that you, you zoned in on that because I think that there are a few practices in the book that really will benefit runners and the ones wrapped up in this notion of accept where you are to get where you want to go, um, for sure. So I'm going to talk about three specific things. The first is this notion of self-distancing, which basically means that when you are in a challenging, emotionally driven situation, it is very hard to think clearly and make good decisions yourself. So if you care really deeply about your running and you want to be a sub three marathoner or a sub three thirty marathoner or whatever it is, and that's super important to you, you're probably not going to make great decisions about your marathon training.
0: Oh man. (laughs) You're going
1: to project yourself out to be closer to that goal than where you actually are. So the first practice, and I promise listeners, Jason, this is not like paid publicity for coaching with Jason. The first practice is to get a coach and listen to that person. Because that person will definitely be able to see more clearly where you are. And once you pay someone, hopefully you'll listen to them. The second thing applies particularly to injuries. So my guess is 95% of people listening to the podcast have been in a situation where they tweak their hamstring or Achilles or calf or you name it. And you've already shut things down for two days. And you don't want to get off your training plan much longer. So you find yourself you know, going 800 milligrams of Motrin and limping down the stairs to go start your run. Hurts to walk, but I'm going to go start my run. And here, a a way to get outside of yourself is to pretend that a close friend or a training partner was in the exact same situation as you. What would you tell that training partner? 99% of the time, the answer is, Steve, Rachel, like you're crazy. Give your hamstring another couple days to calm down. And it's better to miss a couple days now than a couple weeks or a couple months later. But then why are you yourself limping down the stairs to go do that workout? So you actually have to listen to the advice that you would pretend to give a friend. So those are both very much training related, right? Wanting to get farther along than you actually are, or in the case of an injury, being a little bit delusional about what's actually going on for a hit of feel good. Now I can do my workout. I can log that. I only have to miss two easy runs versus feel good later, which is I'm actually going to give this thing the time and space to clear up. So many running injuries, Jason, they start small and they become big because people don't take the extra day, two days, three days, one week. Accepting that, hey, I'm hurt, but it's going to be a lot worse if I keep pushing is really hard. But ultimately, that's the stuff between, you know, being able to train more or less consistently versus having to have uh, large gaps in your training. And then the third one I wanted to talk about was more when you're in the middle of a workout or you're in the middle of a race. And in the book, I talk about this Buda's parable from ancient um, Eastern wisdom traditions about the second arrow. And the first arrow is the thing that happens that you can't control or that you didn't see coming. The second arrow is all of your repression or judgment or fear or resistance to that thing. So you're mid-workout, or you're at mile 16 of an important marathon, and suddenly you get cramps. Okay, that's the first arrow. You've got cramps. The second, third, and fourth arrows are, oh my gosh, this is gonna throw off my entire race. I might as well quit. Why do I still do these? These are never gonna go away. It's all of this self-talk or delusion about what's happening, which just burns energy and prevents you from actually taking wise action to deal with what's happening. So the first arrow is, again, the thing that you can't control. And in the case of cramps, maybe you could control it. But when you actually have a cramp, there's not much you can do. But it's often the second, third, fourth, and fifth arrows that actually hurt worse than the first arrow. Another example from my running days, porta potty stops during a race. You can just get it over with and go to the bathroom and get back on the course, or you can obsess about how you're going to shit your pants, how it's going to completely blow up your race time, how this always happens. Maybe I'll be able to hold it. And all that stuff is just mental energy that you actually need to run a good
0: race. I love that. And and I feel like what you're describing is, is a form of mental toughness. And the way that I describe that is your ability to proactively solve problems on the fly in a productive way. And and that's all it is. It's not this, you know, super masculine idea of toughness and you're you're beating your chest. It's it's none of that. It's really about, you know, looking at whatever problem or issue or obstacle is in your way and proactively trying to solve that. And you're right. in In a race, man, you can really let those little demons on your shoulder whisper everything that they can into your ear and and listen to it. But like you said, the second, third, fourth arrows are almost like they're almost more important because they determine how you're going to respond to whatever that obstacle might be. I I really like that. Is this another way of describing almost being more process oriented where you're, you're not really sort of projecting into the future, you're, you're trying to do the best you can right now today with what you have. And and that's a sort of a way of, I like to think about being process oriented. You know, you're, you're doing the right thing right now. You're not trying to do what you think you should do or anything like that. It's the process based on reality. Yes.
1: Um, and I think that this stuff becomes even more important in distance running so, if you're running like the 100 meter dash, not too much can go wrong. And if something goes wrong, it's going to blow up your race. If you don't start well, well, it's only 100 meters. You're not going to run a good race. If you have a hamstring strain, guess what? Like that's the end of your race. But in a 5K or 10K or half marathon or marathon, all kinds of stuff's going to come up. So, this ability to just really accept what's happening and be in the moment so that you can problem solve effectively gets increasingly important as the distance of the race goes up. I think I have a hypothesis. I haven't empirically tested it. This is why ultra running tends to favor older individuals. Because while their raw talent might not be as good as the younger competitors, they have more wisdom. And in a 50, 100, 200 mile race, wisdom becomes almost as important as raw talent because again, more stuff is going to happen. So it's your ability to deal with that stuff. Uh, that becomes super important. So I think that process and presence go hand in hand, because if you're focused on the process, you really have to be present for like, this is what's happening right now. This is what's happening in the moment. Um, the triathlete, Marinda Carfrey talks about how when shit hits the fan in the marathon of an Ironman, which it always does. She just thinks like eat, drink, run eat drink run like the, that's what i can control that's what i have to keep on doing maybe it's eat drink walk run but it just completely eliminates the the monologue in between your ears that again just burns a ton of cognitive energy that you actually need to solve the problem at
0: hand and to stay focused for the rest of the race yeah i love that the the burning of cognitive energy i think is is a really critical thing to think about when you encounter any sort of issue in a longer race, because I think, you know, that is such an obstacle for runners engaged in those longer races. And not only are you just burning cognitive energy, you're increasing your anxiety levels, which is going to further, you know, reduce your ability to make good decisions. And you need to make good decisions in those long races.
1: For sure. I talk about this uh, in a lot of detail in the book, but it's not even necessarily The cognitive energy that you need to solve the problem at hand it's also the cognitive energy that you need to stay on the right pace come mile 22 which is really freaking hard like it takes a lot of psychic cognitive energy to run a good race because it is very hard to get right at your threshold and stay like a half a centimeter underneath it and maintain that discipline and that focus and You do not want to burn the precious resources that you need for that, especially again, in these longer races.
0: Yeah. And I think what you're describing too is, is even more important for those runners who are more highly trained because they're more able to ride that very important line between going a little bit too far, which will absolutely wreck your race and just being right under that, that threshold of this is the pace or effort that I can maintain until the finish line. And so if any of our listeners are more competitive athletes, they're more uh performance oriented this issue i think is going to be a lot more important to you because you have to really free your mind to allow that cognitive energy to be deployed where it needs to be deployed instead of worrying about things you can't control
1: yep and obviously we're talking about
0: running but this is true for any challenge in life yeah absolutely so Brad you mentioned being present and you know i i really like this because you know, I, I'm going to age myself a little bit, but <laughs> I grew up, you know, I started running before GPS watches before everyone before iPods. And so I felt like I was much more present for my training, um, for most of my formative years as a runner. And, you know, our meaningful work as runners, our, our, our workouts and our long runs. Do you think it's, it's valuable to promote being present in those particular training sessions by eliminating listening to music or podcasts. Of course, we can make an exception for the strength running podcast, but, (laughs) but I mean, seriously, should we avoid those sort of distractions and, and really be paying attention to our bodies, pay attention to, you know, all those signals that are being communicated to us by our bodies during those important sessions? Well, I'd say it depends.
1: So the first thing is what's your goal? And if your goal is to have a good time and crush a workout, and listening to music or a podcast helps you have a good time and crush a workout, there's nothing wrong with that. If your goal is to be a super elite runner and to really, in super elite, not necessarily like out against the field, your own version of super elite, but to really hone like the ability to know your body Where that edge is for you. What the difference, I'm going to give a newbie example because it's true for newbies too. What the difference between an 845 and an 830 mile actually feels like to you, then you might want to leave the devices behind for those workouts, at least like the listening devices, and we'll get to GPS watches and and stuff in a second, um, and just use that stuff on easy runs. And then if you want to have like a spiritual experience running and like running is your meditation and running like is your chance to just have your mind go blank, then it can be really helpful not to have that stuff on. I think a lot of runners on long runs go through the experience where they might start listening to a podcast at the start of the run and then they just kind of enter that like space of like nothingness, which is really a pretty neat space to be in if you're used to your mind racing all the time. Then you just switch the podcast off. I know that's what I do with my training. I'll often start training with something on, and then whether it's the nature sounds that I'm getting through my ear that you know, I just get a little bit, I start listening more, and then next thing I know, I just want to turn off whatever it is I'm listening to. As far as the pacing tools, so there's a model that I like to write about called the four levels of competence. I don't know if you or your listeners might be familiar, but the first level of competence is unconscious incompetence. So you don't know that you don't know what you're doing. No devices are going to help you. What you need is some books and a coach. The second level is conscious incompetence. So you know that you don't know what you're doing. There, devices can help you because you can get feedback. You can look at the watch for your pace or your heart rate or whatever it is that you're using. The third level is conscious competence. So here, you know what you're doing and you have to be conscious of it. And this is where devices are super helpful. I'm running a 545 pace. I can feel it, but I've also got this watch and I'm really deliberately paying attention. The fourth level is unconscious competence, where you don't have to think about it. It just happens. And what often happens is people's over-reliance on devices keeps them stuck at level three. So the example of this is, and it can cut both ways. You could be about to have one of the best workouts of your life. But your watch suddenly says you're running 530 instead of 540 and you freak out and you go down to 540 just because the watch said when, in fact, on that day, your body was going to run 530 and be great. The flip side is you might be coming off of a cold or the flu or you might have a hamstring that's about to get pulled. And on that day, 540 feels a lot like 530. But because your watch says 540, you might be like, oh, got to hit 530, got to get down, got to fight through it. And in those instances, I think the devices can be a huge disservice because they sometimes hold you back when you should push forward or push you forward when you should hold back. Now, it's a fine line between, you know, having that device to help you get a feel for those paces versus having the confidence to leave the device at home once you have the feel. I
0: appreciate you saying super elite for you and... I, I think that's a clear differentiator between essentially reaching your own potential, getting a peak performance out of yourself, rather than comparing yourself to, you know, w- an, an objective elite athlete. Um, and, and this whole idea of unconscious competence is really fascinating to me because it it totally reminds me of you know my own running days and how you know at a certain period of my t- of my running career you could get on the track and just execute paces without a watch that are within five seconds of each other. And you would know the difference intuitively of how these paces feel. And I loved that it was a feeling of physical intelligence that I absolutely loved. And and I think you're right that a lot of runners today are so over-reliant on their GPS watches that they kind of can't get to that next level because it's subjective. It requires you to know yourself. And because of that, it's kind of hard to teach. You know, you, you don't learn it in a couple of weeks. You can't learn it just by taking off your GPS watch for for one workout every once in a while. It really needs to almost be this lifestyle that happens over and over again through repeated exposure to it to really, to really learn. Um, and and I think, you know, kind of being more present when the going gets tough during those times that are really difficult, maybe are more important learning opportunities. Would you say that that's potentially true where, you know, it's almost like the issue of deliberate practice, you know, when your practice is very challenging, that's where you need fewer distractions.
1: I very much agree with you. In the book, I talk about how um, it is almost always harder at first to do something challenging without distraction than with distraction. And then later on, it becomes easier and more fulfilling. So the first couple times you try to run without distraction is going to be hard because you are going to be bored, or your mind's going to race, or you're going to be anxious that you might be running the wrong pace, or you might um, tune into your body so much that suddenly you're realizing all these sensations that you didn't even know existed. And no doubt popping on the music relying on your watch is much easier. But if you stick with that more intuitive, fully present way of running, eventually you get to a point where that actually becomes easier in the watch or the podcast or the music, it all just becomes noise. And I think that it's a question that you as a runner have to ask yourself, like, well, where do I want to go with this? Do I enjoy this to stay in shape and have fun? Which is very different than I actually want to have a deeper relationship with the sport. And like you so eloquently said, I want to pursue like physical mastery, which I argue, and I talk about this in the book in a world that is so digital and knowledge economy driven and frantic and frenetic, like having physical mastery helps ground you well beyond running. So I'm a big proponent of, Hey, carve out the time, you know, let's, let's, let's leave the watch aside because again, depending on where you're at in your journey, it might actually be a great tool. It might not, but the podcast, the distractions, I'm a big proponent of trying to leave that behind. Um, for, for a period of time when you're working on physical practice. And I know it, you know, even, even like in my own strength training. So we're not even talking running. We're talking like what? Three sets of five deadlifts, right? If I go down there with a podcast on, I get through the workout and that's that. And I feel good after. If I go down there without anything on, I enjoy the workout so much more and the lifts are of better quality. And I'm more motivated to do it the next time. But it's always harder to start a workout without the podcast on because my 21st century brain's like, you know, well, this isn't productive. You could be learning something um, while you train. And that's kind of that initial barrier that you just have to, to, to fight through to then get to doing the thing for the sake of doing itself with no distraction.
0: Yeah, it's so much more rewarding when you can actually get to that place. I remember one of my favorite workouts used to be 8K at tempo effort on the track. Which is a boring workout. I mean, we're, we're running 20 laps on a track at a consistent kind of, you know, a pace that you could go for, you know, maybe upwards of an hour or so. And I used to love that workout because it was so meditative. It was, I was just like, going to
1: say it's meditation. It's like listening to your breath for 30 minutes. It's hard, but it's not like painful. It's just hard. But once you like zone in and you find that breath or in your case, like you find that pace, then you just get to ride
0: that wave. And it's a really neat thing. Oh, it's it was it was so great, and one of my favorite training memories was actually enlisting the help of my little sister to come to the track with me, and she recorded every 400 meter split on a piece of paper. But I told her, "Don't tell me. I don't want to know. I want to look at it later." And I was at such a great spot with my training that I had such a consistent tempo run. Every lap was, you know, pretty consistent with the one before it, and there was a slight negative split to the workout and when you can execute that kind of a run without a watch when you get to this this point of physical intelligence it is so incredibly rewarding now another part of your, this section in your book, you kind of talk about how your environment is really important. Do you have any ways that runners might be able to engineer their environment so that they can be a little bit more present with their running? You know, is it as simple as, you know, trying to take off the the watch or the podcast every once in a while and, and try to do that more and more, or do you have any other concrete strategies for runners?
1: Yeah, I think leaving the devices behind is, is the simplest and, and probably the lowest hanging fruit. Um, I think something else that can be helpful is your internal environment. And if you are going to leave something behind, maybe trying to come up with one or two cues that you can focus on when you start to get way distracted. So that cue could be your breathing. That cue could be your right foot hitting the ground. Um, that cue could be like your quadricep muscles or your hamstrings, And it can vary based on the workout, like a tempo run or a long run. You might want that cue to be your breathing because you really want to settle into a place that is sustainable for speed intervals. You might want that cue to be like your foot pushing off the ground or like your knee drive to, so you can have good form. Um, that is very similar in meditation, right? They don't just say sit there and do nothing in like achieve bliss. They say, sit there and pay attention to your breath. So, like what's the internal cue that you can settle in on? That can be super helpful. Um, and then the the last thing would be try to run in an environment that um, if you really want to groove in that you know, because you don't want to be like having to look for street signs and that sort of thing. You kind of just want to like be in the run and, 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 and
0: not have those external things around you sucking your mind away. Do you think in that scenario, it would be beneficial to do some of your more high quality workouts almost in the same training venue time after time? Because I know for me, I got into a great groove where I was doing tempo runs on a certain trail loop when I lived right outside of Washington, DC. And it almost put me in that perfect frame of mind. Every time that I was going to do a hard workout, I was on the track, a tempo run, I was on this, this trail loop. And it was just phenomenal for my my mindset for those workouts.
1: Yeah, spot on. I mean, you and I are kindred spirits. I very much agree with that. I think I want to be careful because I don't want us to come off as like these like elitist athlete Zen masters. There is nothing wrong. I'll say it explicitly with doing workouts with music or podcast or whatever the hell you want. I mean, my guess is most listeners aren't professional athletes. This is supposed to be fun. If that's fun, great. And if you can even start with just one workout a week, just try it and see how it feels. You might find that you actually start to enjoy the distraction-free stuff more. So I did want to kind of like put that non sequitur in because I always want to be careful of like, you know, I still train with music quite a bit. Some days I don't though. And, and those days are very intentional and, and it's great. Um, As for your question about like same place. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's, there's research that shows just that it's called priming that like certain spaces put you in a mode to do certain things. Um, and I think that that's very true with running. Now, does that mean that you have to find the perfect track? No, you can measure the 400, you know, on the the high school football fields track or not even on the grass. Like it doesn't really matter, but I think like some predictability to get into that rhythm is great.
0: I appreciate you bringing up the fact that we're not some elite Zen masters. Uh, I frequently run with music or a podcast, but I think it's always very interesting to talk about, you know, if we are going to optimize for a peak performance, what might be some of these best practices? And so, of course, if you want to run with music, great. Uh, I think there's nothing wrong with that.
1: It's contextual too, um, Jason. There's, There's this research that shows that like, So let's say that you are running with an injury and you did the whole give advice to a friend thing and it's not reckless running with an injury. It's running through some pain. In those instances, running with distraction could actually be helpful because you don't want to be overly focused on that thing that's hurting you and freaking out. Now, in the same instance, if that injury is you know, soft tissue, and it could go from an eight to a nine, if you push too hard, then you actually want to pay pretty close attention to what it feels like. So there's a lot of nuance too in, in what circumstances in particular might call for for leaving the device behind. But yeah, for a healthy runner looking to get the most out of themselves, I think that just trying to start with one workout a week, it's easier on workouts than easy runs, where you drop that stuff. Um, and, and, and you hit it distraction free, I think it's a really good practice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you said that. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about another principle in your book called uh, Embrace Vulnerability to Develop Genuine Strength and Confidence. I love this. I would also love for you to talk a little bit more about how might this look for runners? Mm.
1: Well, there's a poet that I quote in the book, an old German poet, Maria Rainer Rilke. And Rilke said, I want to unfold for where I am folded, there I am a lie. And my interpretation of that is that if you fold over parts of yourself, that you're vulnerable, that you're weakened, you're kind of lying to yourself. And if you lie to yourself, intellectually you can do it, but deep down inside, you know that you're lying to yourself. So in the West, our culture tells us, like, play to your strengths, don't think about your weakness, don't don't even acknowledge them, repress your weaknesses, don't go there. And you can do that intellectually, but eventually those weaknesses creep up on you. So I think that there's two examples that pertain particularly to runners here. I think the first is that you are going to experience pain and discomfort when racing. And that makes you vulnerable because it's not fun to experience pain and discomfort So you can lie to yourself and be like, oh, like it won't be that bad. And then when it's bad, you freak out or you slow down or you get scared. Or you can say, hey, like this is going to hurt and I'm going to accept it's going to hurt. I might even be a little bit scared that it's going to hurt, but I'm not going to be scared about the fact that I'm scared it's going to hurt. I'm just going to call a spade a spade. The second way that being vulnerable can help with runners is when you really care deeply about something and you give something your all and you have skin in the game it makes you extremely vulnerable why because if you do something for a long enough time things eventually aren't going to go your way you're going to fail and the that's just like the cost of being in the arena and caring deeply so way back in the day everybody had the um, and maybe some of y'all were the cool kid in gym school but every or in gym class in school everyone had the cool kid in gym class in school and The cool kid never tried because they were too cool to try, right? No, they weren't too cool to try. They were freaking terrified that they would lose or that they would fail. So they hid behind their insecurity by not giving it their all. Because giving something your all inherently makes you vulnerable. And I think to get the most out of something, you have to give it your all. And you just have to accept like, hey, I might fail and it might hurt. And that's just
0: like, that's part of the game. Falling short on something that you care deeply about is almost an assault on your identity of who you are. And that can be really hard to wrap your head around. And, and there's so many protective mechanisms that we have that, to protect ourselves from that kind of a feeling.
1: Yeah. In the book, I quote the poet David White, who says that the things you care about break your heart.
0: And to me, that just like sums it up perfectly. Yeah, exactly. Running has broken my heart so many times. (laughs) Um, You know, I think a lot of us runners, you know, we try to avoid vulnerability because, you know, it means we have to embrace the fact that maybe we're injured or we're not yet ready to start marathon training, even though we really want to, or, you know, we can't run that pace with the group. That's a big one. Yeah. Although I, I think I can, let me just try. And so it's this lesson in humility. How can athletes get better at being vulnerable with their own limitations, because I feel like that is a limitation in itself that really holds a lot of runners back.
1: I think here, and I write so extensively about this in the back half of the book on like redefining practice, but I think here it's to view running not as a hobby, not as a goal, but as a practice. And I define practice in the way of it is a pursuit that you care about, where the goal is the path, and the pure point of it is to learn more about yourself and to get better at the craft over time. And if you have a practice mindset, it's not to say that races and results are important, but it's still just all information. And when you shift into that like long game mindset, and running becomes less about getting the PR time in this race, and more about like this is a part of who I am, and I get to be really curious about it, and I get to explore myself in my limits, and I get to have a deeper, more intimate relationship with the sport, well, then to me, that also brings with it humility. Because there's not that pressure to have to go out arrogantly and be like, oh, I need to break three hours, so I'm going to go out at 6.46 or whatever the pace is, even if I'm not ready. Whereas if it's a practice, it's like, huh, like this is where I am right now. So you can see how all of these principles, acceptance, presence... Vulnerability—they're all very like interdependent, and in, and in they help feed each other. Um, so that's the first way to do it, and then the second way is through lived experience. I mean, once you blow up in a race because you lied to yourself about you know your abilities, then
0: you're less likely to do it again. I love you talking about kind of thinking about your running as a practice, because when I think back to. You know, the dozens and dozens of runners that I was fortunate enough to be on a track and cross country team with in college, there were so many different psychological approaches to training when you're around so many different guys and and gals on the women's team, too. And it's interesting because I think the runners that were the most successful, and not just the runners that had one good season, I mean, the runners that were pretty successful for all four years, were those runners who loved training they didn't just want to run a fast race. They loved training. They're like, oh, this workout's going to be great today. I can't wait for this long run. They were invested in the process of training. And I feel like that is such an incredible way of thinking about running as a practice, getting curious about the training process, learning about that training process and and getting to a point where you really enjoy it, where you love getting your training log out every day and, and writing about your training session, recording the metrics, but recording some of the subjective measures too. I think that is, is such a valuable psychological perspective on running because it really kind of takes you away from those end goals. You're not just thinking about racing. You're thinking about the day-to-day grind and you're falling in love with the day-to-day grind. That I think is what makes great runners. I couldn't agree more. Great runners and sustainable
1: runners. So it's another principle in the book. And um, it's, it's one that we, we, we may or we may not talk about. That's up to you. But patience and like be patient to get there faster. And when you have a process mindset, it allows you to be more patient because you don't have to rush the thing. You can let it come. And um, in that chapter of the book, I tell extensively the story of Eliud Kipchoge, who is the greatest distance runner of all time, hands down. I think it's fair to say that, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe (laughs) one of the greatest, maybe one of the greatest athletes ever. And, um, so much of Kipchoge's approach to success is rooted in patience. And why? Because he's very focused on the process of getting better and not rushing any result. Um, and he, he, I, I, I write about this. So I want people to pick up the book and read this because it's like, what's makes Kipchoge so special is he's gotten this nickname in running, like the philosopher king of running, and he has so much ease about him. The way that he looks, when he was doing that Nike exhibition and running the two-hour marathon, he looks so easeful until the very, very end. When he's at press conferences, he is so easeful. He's like the Buddha. And I think that a part of that ease comes from patience. Because if you're patient and you can let the race or let the career, in his case, come to you, you don't have to be super uptight. And most people, Kipchoge included, perform better when they're in that easeful state. So that is how this notion of process vulnerability to accept where you are in patience result in better performance.
0: Yeah, I think patience and performance are, are so intimately intertwined because you really can't have one without the other. Uh, Because, you know, if you're not being patient with your training, you're going to get injured or you might become overtrained because you're pushing things so much. Or
1: you're psychologically burnt out because it's really like exhausting, like
0: feeling the compulsion to achieve something around the corner all the time. Right. And also with with process too. you know, if you are a process oriented runner who's fallen in love with training and and kind of that whole process, then you are going to focus on it. You are not going to skip the corners because I think those runners who have that process oriented mindset will just realistically look at their training and be like, well, I can't run that fast mile right now. I need another two months. And so they're really realistic with where they're at and they're not going to attempt something that could leave them injured or, you know, some other, you know, negative outcome because they're just realistic with their current process of where they're at. So I I love that. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about deep community. I think this is such an incredibly important one for runners, um, And an important principle of groundedness too, Brad, you know, I admit that I had, I think I had a huge advantage when I started running because I had a team, I had a coach. I had that supportive community from the very beginning. And that's how I was brought up in the sport. How can we go about creating these bonds, these relationships, this community, if you don't get to join a team right from the start of your running career? All right. So I'm
1: glad that you asked about this principle because I think it's a really important one. So in the book, I tell the story of Shalane Flanagan um, and her decision to go from training predominantly solo to training in a group of other women and how that not only skyrocketed Shalane's career, but also the careers of the other women she trained with and their enjoyment of competing at that level. and. You might be thinking, well, that's Shalane Flanagan. Like, I'm just a regular old, you know, person. That's a whole different ballgame. But I think the reason that her story is so instructive is because it was the same obstacle to building deep community that Shalane faced that so many of us face, which is that it is somewhat unoptimal or inefficient at first. So if you try to run with a community... You have to schedule workouts. You might not be able to run. You, For Shalane, and I'm making this up, I don't know if it's true, let's say that she felt that she peaked and she had the best energy to run at 6.15 a.m., but two of the other women were moms and they had to get their kids out the door to school at 7. So guess what? The group run couldn't start till 7.30 a.m. Well, that's not acutely optimal. It's easier to go out your own door when you feel best. Um, pacing. You mentioned that it doesn't make sense to run with a group where the pacing is way out of whack. But a lot of neurotic type A runners say, oh, they're doing the long run at 7.05 and my training prescribes seven minute pace. I argue that the benefit of doing that run in the group outweighs the fact that you're not perfectly on pace for that long run. So I think that we are so apt to focus on like the acute benefit or the acute efficiency or the thing that's most optimal to us as individuals, that it crowds out the time and space to actually build a community. When the benefits of running in community aren't as um, measurable, but they are so immense for enjoyment of the sport, for sustainability of the sport, and performance. Because if you're enjoying something and you're doing it in a sustainable way, you perform better. Um, so, in in the book, it's called the Shelane Effect. But this notion that it had on her and on all these other women, and in many, myself included, would argue on U.S. women's distance running is she started to embrace the community element of running
0: even more um, towards the later phases of her career. I actually find it more compelling that this helped Shalane because she's elite. Because if it can help her, then it can help us even more. You know, she's someone who was already scratching at the the ceiling of her potential. You know, she's a world-class athlete. I, I think she started training with this women's group Uh, In the back half of her career, you know, this wasn't something she was doing when she was 26 years old.
1: No, 26. Shalane was focused on like, I need to run at this exact pace at this exact time of day because it's me, me, me. And I love Shalane. I'm not criticizing her. I think that's the mindset that most people have about most things even beyond running. But then as you were mentioning, like when she made the switch, it probably felt kind of like angst provoking at first because she's giving all that up. But her performance ends up even improving.
0: Yeah, and if her performance can improve, which it's already so well optimized, I think the potential for others' improvement who aren't at that level is even greater. Now, I also recognize that not everyone has the chance to join a club, or maybe they live in a town where there isn't a big running scene. Is there an opportunity for? you know, uh, joining an online running community uh, that could somehow fill the gap? Can they, Can an online community even begin to give you some of the same things that an in-person group can?
1: So I'm not going to say fill the gap because it can't, but I am going to say it's much better than nothing. So if you are in a place where it's just, there are no runners or there are no runners of your gender, or no runners that run it, a pace even close to yours, whatever it might be, First, I'd say, like, is that really true or have you just not looked, you know, hard enough? But for some people, it really is true. Then, yes, I think that having an online community is much better than nothing. I think the issue is when online community replaces the real thing. And in my own life, in, in, in areas of physical practice and sport, I've had online communities and in-person communities, and they can work hand in hand. So the in-person community, might be people that do the same sport as me, but don't do it at a level at all that I do it. So in my case, because I've been fortunate to like meet some really great performers, I tend to hang out with people that perform at a whole level better than me. So I can still enjoy like, you know, talking about the sport in in all that, but it's at a completely different level. Whereas online, I can go find people that are like 80% good, which is where I am. The flip side can also be true. You might be hundred percent good and you might be like, There's no way I could run with these hobby joggers in town. But you can still go get beers with them and like have friendships that are built around running. And then you can, God forbid, go to like let's Ideally, they're just going to your website, <laughs> um, to 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 get that online community that reaches people that are in your kind of category of running.
0: Yeah, I like that approach because, you know, it's rarely a binary choice. It's not a this or that, a one or a zero. It's a little bit of both. Um, I also think there's real value in just finding maybe one or two other runners that you can meet up with for a run every once in a while. Maybe you have a standing weekly easy run with, with someone who can run a similar pace than you. And so I think when we're talking about community, it doesn't necessarily mean a team or that big club workout that's every Wednesday night with 50 people. It can really be just one other runner to give you that space to talk about the sport, to share stories about the sport, to talk about your goals and how your training is going. I think those spaces are, are really one of the big benefits of having that community. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a whole big group of people. It could really just be a, one other person.
1: Yeah. And then the only other thing I'd add there, Jason, is because I know a lot of the people in your running community are training pretty hard. It's all relative, but hard for them. Anecdotally, in my own life and with people that I know, when we trade hard alone, we become very grumpy people. When we trade hard with others, we become a lot more easeful and have a lot more fun And our partners like us more and our kids like us more. Um So there's that too, like training alone, training hard is hard. Training hard alone is harder. So might as well try to train hard
0: together. What is that line? Misery loves company. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Runners love company. They're synonymous. Yeah. If you're going to suffer on a long run or a workout, it's best to have a few friends with you. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been really challenging for me, right? So, I've dealt with chronic exertional compartment syndrome um, in a pretty rough way over the last three years. I'm going to have my calf operated on in a few months here. So, my own physical practice has really shifted towards strength training. Um, Just because running got to a point where my calf was going to explode, it it, it was very painful, um, unfortunately. So, And strength training during COVID-19, like, it's really hard to find places to do it outside. You need to, like, move a power rack outside. And my motivation to train hard went to shit after about two months of training alone in my basement. Um, So I think the absence of community there for me, like, really brought to bear the importance of it.
0: Yeah. That's sort of like my experience with running. You know, I've had three kids over the last uh, eight years. And so my training has, has been challenged to say the least, but I recently had one of my great friends and, and former teammate from college move just a couple blocks down and he's been training for things and we can go for runs every once in a while. And it's just amazing to have that kind of support that is is so convenient and so even if it's just one person even if you have experience being on a team you know having that that deep community getting back to just running with one other person is is so amazing especially i think at this point in the pandemic where if you have been training alone uh if if you can get to a point where you can find one other person to run in it is really going to change your mindset about the sport
1: yeah i couldn't agree more um And you know, with the pandemic, it was really hard and now we're, we're learning more and it's not my area of expertise, but I think it's pretty common knowledge. Like if you're vaccinated and the person you're with is vaccinated and you're outside, you have like almost nothing to worry about. Yeah. Um, and
0: now that we know that
1: it's a great time to
0: start building running community again. Oh, I'm excited, Brad. You've got me really jazzed about training hard because now we can do it more productively, more sustainably. I want to go call up a bunch of runners and go for a group run now. <laughs> make sure you tell them to buy the book too. Buy the book <laughs> too. <laughs> well, Brad, this has been such a fun conversation. I, I always have fun chatting with you. And I, I certainly encourage all of our listeners to pick up uh, your, your new book, The Practice of Groundedness, and uh, also follow you on Twitter. I really enjoy the material you post on, on Twitter. Uh, you make that website uh, much better than it might be if you weren't there. Uh, well, I appreciate that. You
1: know, um, I do my best. It's tough, man. It's tough. Thank you for saying that because I often wonder, like, what the hell am I doing on Twitter? So it's good to get some positive feedback. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the best is an aside for, um, for people because it's funny. One of the best book comments I got was I tweeted something about the practice of groundedness. And some guy, if you're listening... Scouty Doug, never heard of him. He just quote tweets me, which basically like means for those not on Twitter, he takes like a little picture of my tweet and then writes something above it. And he says, I don't even know who this dude is or how I found him on the shithole dumpster fire of an app, but I'm so glad I did. And his book is great. (laughs) And... I told my wife Caitlin I want to print that out and like frame it above my office because um that I've I've, I've been very fortunate to receive some compliments, but nothing beats Scouty Doug.
0: <laughs> what a lifetime accomplishment that is! <laughs> there we go. I can retire on top now. <laughs> <laughs> now, Brad, before I let you go, I also know that you do many other things. You don't just have one book out and you're on Twitter. Uh, I think you have. The Growth Equation newsletter, where where can other folks find you on the internet uh, besides Twitter?
1: Yeah. So Twitter, I'm at B Stahlberg. Um, and then I run, we call it like a, a little media platform dedicated to sustainable performance and excellence with my collaborator, Steve Magnus, far better runner than I'll ever be or I ever was. Um, and that's the growth equation and that's just www.thegrowthequation,
0: excuse me, www.thegrowtheq.com. Got it. Yeah. You guys have put together some really interesting stuff. So Brad, thank you for your expertise and your time today. We so appreciate it. I'm going to link to your book, the growth equation, your Twitter account, all kinds of extra goodies in the show notes. Mr. Brad Stolberg. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate it, Jason.
0: All right, thank you for listening. That's my discussion with Brad Stolberg. I hope you go check out his new book, The Practice of Groundedness, soon because Amazon had it nearly 40% off recently. You can also see the show notes on Strength Running for more of Brad's work. A big thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode. They want to help you do what you love for life. They want you to be a successful, healthy runner for decades. Inside Tracker is the industry's leading personalized blood testing company that helps you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. Understanding your body's biomarkers from stress hormones like cortisol to testosterone to vitamin D can help you determine if any of your critical biomarkers aren't where they need to be. But the best part is that after they give you personalized, optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers, they give you a whole variety of ways to improve them through diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests from them, and the process is simple, it's easy, and it's very eye-opening. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off any test at insidetracker.com strengthrunning. This represents a big chunk of savings, so stack the odds in your favor and give yourself every advantage with a personalized blood test. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to save 25% today. We're also supported by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition super simple. I personally struggle with eating all the healthy food I know I should be eating, so I'm finding their product, AG1, really helpful as my training ramps up this fall. One scoop per day is what I've been doing, and it includes 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin and multiminerals, greens, superfood blend, probiotics, and more. This helps me fill in any nutrition gaps in my diet, and I have quite a few, (laughs) and it gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day. And with all three of my kids in school, I know I've got to support my immune system or else I'm getting sick and can't train. But what I love about AG1 is that it changes. Over the last decade, they've made 53 improvements to the formula based on the latest research to make these nutrients more absorbable and more rigorous with third-party testing. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to see the great offer that they've put together for podcast listeners. You'll get a whole year's worth of free vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can sign up for a single shipment or for a monthly drop. The choice is yours. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to learn more and sign up today. All right, that's our show today, friends. Thank you for making this community so special, and we'll be in touch really soon.